I was a youth pastor for eight years at uh, the church where I started in ministry, Salem Baptist Church in New Brighton. And over the course of my time as a youth pastor, we would take kids out on, out on mission trips like uh, Pastor Otto does here at Lakes Free. And one of the mission trips we went on was a youth works trip to the Wind, Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. And uh, it was an incredible place and an incredible trip, but we got there and we were the first group there that summer. And we were gonna be spending the week uh, living at an old Catholic mission uh, there on the Wind River Indian Reservation and then uh, doing various ministry in the community. Well, the host greeted us as we pulled into this old Catholic mission. Nobody had really used this place in years. Uh, they were just basically allowing youth works to use it over the course of the summer. So we pulled in and they said, okay, you guys are going to be staying over in, uh, in the basement of the old church over there. So we unpacked our bags and we walk over to this old church and they unlock it and open the doors and, and uh, they led us downstairs to uh, what was sort of like our fellowship hall right below us here, kind of this old kind of multi-purpose room. And we were supposed to just lay out our sleeping bags and our gear and that's where we were going to stay that week. Well, as soon as we walked into the church and, and started heading down the stairs, I mean, I could just smell something funky in this building, right? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. You know, we're here to serve. We're on a missions trip. And, you know, it's not supposed to be all comfortable, you know. And so I'm just kind of thinking, all right, let's just go with this. And so we walked downstairs to this fellowship hall, and, and I'm just like, man, this is really, there's something funky going on in this room. And I couldn't, you know, I didn't see anything obvious right, in, you know, right there. And, uh, and so I just tried to ignore it. But pretty soon all the kids in the group, right, there were about 30 kids with high school kids. And everybody's like, oh, this stinks. We can't stay here. This is, you know. And uh, so my brother and I, uh, my brother was with us on this trip. We started looking around trying to figure out what was the source of this smell. And uh, we were walking all over this room. It was, it was a large room. And uh, we walked around the corner. And there around the corner was a hallway leading to another set of stairs that went back up into the sanctuary area. But this stairway was right underneath the old belfry of the church. And friends, I kid you not, when we turned the corner to look around and find this smell, we saw there at the base of this stairway, a pile of bat guano at least three feet high. I kid you not. Uh, a pile of bat droppings at least as high as my knees. I mean, big round pile. And it must have been there for years and years. And so we were just overwhelmed. My brother and I, we literally were like gagging. And, and uh, now I have a deathly fear of bats. I can't stand bats, right? So I'm thinking this is like worst case scenario in my mind. We went and got a flashlight. We shined it up in the old bell tower of the church. That's a belfry, right? That's about right. We shined it up in the old belfry of the church. And uh, we could literally see like the walls crawling with thousands and thousands of bats that had made this place their home. Well, we're thinking, oh my goodness, we're supposed to live here for a week. And, uh, you know, man, I, I don't do bats. <laughs> so we started looking around the, uh, the mission, trying to find some way to resolve this. Our host had basically dropped us off and left us. And they're like, all right, we'll see you tomorrow morning. And we're thinking, all right, what are we supposed to do here? So we went digging around. We found in their cafeteria building a big roll of saran wrap. 
And so my brother and I, we took this big roll of saran wrap and a big roll of duct tape, and we sealed the whole entryway to this stairwell with saran wrap and duct tape. I mean, we made a layer, an impenetrable layer of saran wrap to block out the bats and the smell of this guano. And, uh, and it actually worked pretty well. Uh, it, it helped diminish the smell and, and put our minds to ease a little bit that night as we went to bed. But, uh, but, you know, it was still there, and we could still smell it in the background, and it really kind of creeped me out all week long. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, why is Pastor Jason talking about stinky bat guano here on Sunday morning? Well, the reason, friends, is because the experience I had with that bat guano isn't very different from the fundamental problem we've been looking at here in the book of Hebrews the past two weeks. And the fundamental problem that we've been looking at here in our study of Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8 is simply this. It's the reality of our sin and the holiness of our creator God. Now what does that have to do with stinky bat guano? Well, friends, the reality is is there's no real polite way for me to say this, so I'm just going to come out and say it. The reality is, is you stink. You do. You stink. All right? Now, we haven't done this exercise in about two years here at Lakes Free, and I think it's important for us to do this again this morning because we have new people here who haven't done this before, and some of you may have forgotten how much you stink, and it's important for us to be reminded of the fundamental issue that we all have as human beings. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the person next to you, and I want you to take a big whiff of them, all right? All right, so smell the person sitting next to you. There you go. Take a, come on, Olin, take a big whiff. To smell the person sitting next to you. Now, friends, good job. I'm proud of you. Now, tell me, as you smell the person sitting next to you, what do you smell? What do you smell? Friends, I'll tell you what you smell. You either smell that person stink or you smell something covering up their stink, right? I mean, that's the only two options. The reality is, friends, as human beings, We all stink. Now, we stink physically, but more significantly than that, we stink spiritually because of our sin. And friends, our sin is literally a stench in the nostrils of our holy creator God. You see, God in his holiness, he cannot tolerate the stink of our sin. And like we saw last week, this has created a chasm, an an unbridgeable chasm between us and God. The stink of our sin and God's holiness, his righteousness. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 51.5, King David says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul in Ephesians 2.3 calls us children of wrath because of our stink. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin, the problem of your stink, Paul says, leads to death. See, this is a big issue, friends. It's a huge issue. And the fundamental human problem is simply this. How can we reconcile our fallen, sinful, stinking nature with our holy creator, God? 
And you see, this is the question that underlies everything we've been looking at the past two weeks in the book of Hebrews as we've been looking at Hebrews chapter seven, chapter eight, and as we move forward into chapters nine and 10 eventually. This is the central question. How do we reconcile our lives with a holy creator God? Access to God is really the fundamental issue here. How do we do that? Who can do that for us? Those are the questions that the author of Hebrews is addressing. Now, just by way of a quick review so we have a context for what we're looking at again. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written about 30 years after the time of Christ. And so these Hebrew Christians, these were Jewish Christians, they had begun to waver in their faith, if you recall from the last couple weeks. They had begun to question whether they had really put their trust in the right guy. Because they remembered that as Jews, they had a system in place to provide them some kind of access to God, right? They would go to the priest, and the priest would perform a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would provide a temporary covering for their sin so that they could be temporarily made right with God again until they sinned again, and then they needed to go and do that over again, right? But at least they had a system in place for them to gain some level of access or peace with God. And so these Jewish Hebrew Christians were considering turning their back on their faith in Christ because again, he's gone, right? He died, he rose again, he's up in heaven. And they still believed all of that, but again, their fundamental question was, well, how do we have access to God if Jesus is up in heaven? They didn't fully understand the nature of everything that Christ had accomplished for us. And so that's why the author of Hebrews is writing to clarify the fact that in Jesus Christ, we don't need to go back to the old system of the Jews, the old covenant system of the laws and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, that Jesus has brought in a new religious system for us. A new system, not based on religious works and acts of righteousness, but based on what he had accomplished for us. And so in chapter seven and chapter eight, we see the author of Hebrews making this argument that in Jesus Christ, we have a better priest. In Jesus Christ, we have a better hope. If you, were with, if you were with us last week, we talked about how in chapter seven, the author of Hebrews actually says that the old covenant, the old religious system of Judaism, he says it was weak and useless because it could not actually do anything to remove that pile of backwano from our lives. It just simply covered it up like that saran wrap. But it still remained. And so the priests and the sacrifices and the people, they had to do this over and over and over again, these religious rituals, in order to make themselves right with God. But again, it was only temporary. And so the author of Hebrews points out, that stuff was weak and useless. Why would you go back to that? Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus offers a better hope because remember, he was a permanent priest. He was a powerful priest and he was a priest backed by the promise of God. This is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. And now today, we're gonna see that Jesus ushered in a whole new era between God and humanity. And this new era that Jesus brought into the world is called the New Covenant. And this new covenant is founded, friends, on better promises, far better promises than what is offered in the Old Testament religious system. So I want you to, I want you to see how the argument has taken shape here now. We've been at this for three weeks, right in the dead center heart of Hebrews, chapter seven and eight, and here's how this argument's unfolding. Okay, Hebrews seven and eight, we've got a better priest, we've got better, a better hope, 
a better priest, a better hope, and now today we're gonna see that in Jesus we have better promises. A better priest, a better hope, better promises. Friends, isn't that awesome? I mean, this is, this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. Now, what are these better promises that we have in the new covenant through Jesus Christ? Well, this is what we're gonna look at today in our passage, Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through 13. Now, here's what I wanna do. I wanna read this passage for us. I'm gonna stop at a couple points as we're going through our reading and make a few observations to let you kind of in on what's going on here. But what I really wanna focus in on in this passage is the second half of this passage, verses seven through 13, because this is really the fundamental focus of this passage, these promises offered to us in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this, starting in verse one. And again, I'm gonna make some observations as we go along here. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. All right, now this first part of our passage for today talks about the reality that these Old Testament priests served in a sanctuary, they offered gifts and services in a sanctuary that was a copy, a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, the sanctuary in which Christ now serves as our perfect high priest. Now, we're not going to deal with that stuff today because next week when we get into chapter 9, we're going to look at the issue of the sanctuary and what took place in the sanctuary and why the old covenant had a place and a purpose and how Jesus now has superseded that and now serves in a perfect heavenly sanctuary. All right. So if if this stuff interests you, come back next week because we're going to deal with all that next week. But what I want to focus in on now is the second half of this passage. All right, read again verse six. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Okay, so there's a new covenant, it's superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. Now look at what verse seven says. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Now, Friends, here's the deal. We've been pretty hard on the old covenant here the last couple weeks. I mean, we've been beating this thing up pretty good, right? But the question might be coming to some of your minds, well, wait a minute, didn't God give them the old covenant? I mean, the author of Hebrews is calling this thing weak and useless. He says here that something better is coming to to replace it. Did God make some kind of mistake? Right? Have you guys been kind of wondering about that? Friends, God made no mistake with the Old Covenant. We're gonna talk about this more next week, but the Old Covenant was never meant to be permanent. The fault in the Old Covenant lay in the people themselves. 
You see, the old covenant, the law, it gave us a correct picture of God. It helped us to understand God's holiness, his righteousness. The old covenant gave us a sacrificial system to show us God's grace and his love and the ability to be forgiven of our sins. The old covenant gave us all of that. But the problem in the old covenant was the people themselves. It was our stinking sinful nature that the old covenant never fully dealt with. It just simply offered a temporary external cleansing. It couldn't provide a permanent cleansing of the heart. And so this is why a new covenant was required if our sin problem was to be solved once and for all. And God provided that new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now this is where we're gonna get to the heart of our passage today. Let's look again at chapter, verse seven going on. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with who? With the people, right? Again, it wasn't about the covenant, it was the people. They stink. We stink, right? Something needed to be done about that. And so God said, now here's, this is really cool. The next few verses we're gonna look at is actually a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. It's a prophecy from prophet Jeremiah given 600 years before this where he promised, God promised through him that he was gonna usher in a new covenant. So what we're reading here is actually the author of Hebrews saying, look at God has promised this all along. 600 years ago, he told us this new covenant was coming. He told us these new promises were coming. Look at what he says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man say, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man to his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Friends, God has given us a new covenant, and this new covenant is founded on far better promises. And this is what I want to focus in on here in our time this morning, is this new covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ. And specifically, I want to hone in on these incredible promises that God has made to us and that he's fulfilled for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is where the power of the new covenant resides, friends. It resides in the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're gonna look at three promises that God gives us. Now remember, he had prophesied, these promises were coming. He had prophesied this 600 years before the book of Hebrews. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, look at the promises have been fulfilled. These are ours now in Jesus Christ. And we're gonna see three promises highlighted. God has promised that in Christ, he's gonna give us a new heart, he's gonna give us a new relationship, and he's gonna give us a new standing with God. Three powerful promises. Let's take a look at each of these this morning. Number one, in Christ, God has given us a new heart. God has given us a new heart. Hebrews 
Chapter eight, verse 10 says this, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now friends, the problem with the old covenant was that it was wholly external. Okay, the old covenant gave us laws, but it didn't give us any internal power to live them out. What humanity needed was a radical heart transformation. What all of us need, friends, is a spiritual heart operation. I read an incredible story this past week about a famous uh, South African surgeon named Dr. Christian Bernard. He was the first man to ever do a human-to-human heart transplant surgery. Guy, guy's a pioneering surgeon. And I uh, read an incredible story about his life and his work. The third guy ever in history to receive a human heart transplant from Dr. Bernard was a man by the name of Dr. Philip Bleiberg. He was a friend and colleague of Dr. Bernard. And Dr. Bleiberg had received a human heart transplant, the third person in all of history to receive a human heart transplant. A few days after Dr. Bleiberg had fully recovered in the hospital, Dr. Bernard came and visited him, his friend, and said, hey, would you be interested in seeing your old heart? And Dr. Bleiberg said, sure. And uh, so the next day he went down to Dr. Bernard's clinic, and Dr. Bernard went up to the cabinets, and he opened up a cabinet, and he pulled out a glass jar containing Dr. Bleiberg's heart. Friends, can you imagine that? This was the first man in human history to hold his own heart in his hands. Dr. Bleiberg stood there holding his heart and he just stared at it for a few moments and Dr. Bernard recounts that all he said after looking at his heart for a minute or two was, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he put it down and he walked out and didn't look back. Friends, God knew that what we needed was spiritual heart surgery. We needed a new and improved heart with God's laws written upon it. And this is what the new covenant does through Jesus Christ. It replaces external commands with internal enablement so we now have the ability to obey God's commands from the heart. And we do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Look what the Bible promises to us about the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? This is just some of what God gives us. The Holy Spirit provides power. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus in John 14 says that the Holy Spirit would be a spirit of truth who would guide us into all truth. He gives us a supernatural discernment to discern right from wrong, good from evil. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul, that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. That when we trust in Christ, that the Holy Spirit produces good fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These qualities that make us more Christ-like are produced in us, not by us, but by the Holy Spirit as we grow and mature in our relationship with Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says that the Holy Spirit empowers us for godly living. He gives us the ability to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions in this present age. Right now we can do that. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is just some of what the gospel does for us. You see, in Jesus Christ, God transforms our hearts. And now, here's the thing, this doesn't mean that you're not gonna still struggle with sin, that you're not gonna still struggle with temptation, but the difference is, friends, now, through the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us, we have a new enablement and new inclinations motivating us to live for God. Right? Have you noticed that in your walk with Christ, that the more you're pursuing Christ, the more you're growing in your faith, the things of the world just don't have the same kind of appeal anymore. Right? In fact, they, they even start to turn you off. They, they start to repulse you in a sense because, because God is doing a new work in your heart. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, we went to see, we went to see this movie and we were at the movie theater and we, we really didn't know a whole lot about the movie that we were going in to see and, and probably within the first five minutes we heard 20 F-bombs dropped in this movie, right? And it was just like, it just was grieving our spirits. And so we got up and we left the theater because we, our new nature couldn't sit there and receive that without being affected and hurt and grieved by that. This is the kind of stuff that the Holy Spirit does as he does this transformative work in your life. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and behold, the new is here. God gives us a new heart. In that incredible promise that we have, through Jesus Christ, God can give us a new heart. The second promise we see here in our passage today from Hebrews chapter eight, not only does God wanna give you a new heart, friends, and he can give you a new heart, but number two, the second promise, God wants to give you a new relationship, a new relationship with him. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 10 and 11, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Friends, the old covenant between God and his people was entered into corporately by the nation. See, it wasn't about a personal relationship with God, it was about a corporate relationship. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the leaders of the people, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, they would gather the people together as a nation, a huge large group, and they would read the covenantal promises of God to his people, and then collectively as a nation, they would pledge their fidelity to God. They would do that corporately as a nation. Now here's the thing you need to understand. In Israel, under the Old Covenant, it was literally possible to know God and his laws in a legal sense, but not know God personally. Not have a personal relationship with him. I mean, think of that. In that crowd of a million people pledging their fidelity to the covenant of God under Moses, Aaron, Joshua, right? I mean, did every single one of them truly have a personal relationship? faith in God? Or were they just saying the words that everybody else was saying, right? And so the covenant of the Old Testament allowed for the reality of knowing God intellectually in a legal sense, but never having a true knowledge of God that led to heart transformation. But the new covenant isn't just a corporate relationship. It offers a personal relationship where every individual has the invitation to be born again. 
and invited into a new relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. And so what we're talking about here, what this passage is talking about here, friends, is the difference between knowing a truth intellectually and experiencing it personally. There's a big difference between that. When I was a kid growing up, my mom she used to make this meal that, uh, I mean, it seemed like she'd make it once a week, and I, I just despised this meal, all right? I love my mom, but I couldn't stand this particular meal. Uh, I've changed a little bit in recent years. I'm a little more open to this now, but, but back in the day, when my mom would make beef stew, I would sit down at the kitchen table, and I would just be like, ugh, but not again. And I'm, she would make beef stew like weekly, all right? And, 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 and so my brother and I, we would learn these, you know, little techniques. We'd try to shovel it under our mashed potatoes and cover it up. Or we'd, you know, hey, mom, look at that. And we'd scoop some down to the dog, trying to get rid of it as fast as we could, right? And my mom, you know, she knew we didn't like beef stew. And so every single time she would make beef stew, we'd end up having the exact same conversation, right? My mom would see us sitting there playing with our food, and she would, she would say to my brother and I, she would say, boys, don't you know there are starving kids <laughs> in Africa who would love to have that beef stew. How many of you have heard that one before, right? <laughs> Don't you know there's starving kids in Africa, right? Now, friends, here's the thing, right? I knew there were starving kids over in Africa. I mean, I watched the news. I'm not dumb. I knew intellectually that there were starving kids in Africa. But you know what? They're 5,000 miles away over in Africa, and I'm the one sitting here with this junky bowl of beef stew in front of me, right? What am I supposed to do about that, Right? But here's the deal. Over the last 30 years of my life, I've had the ability to travel all over the world. And I've walked into villages in Africa and Asia and South America. And I've seen starvation. And I've smelled starvation. I've held starvation. And friends, when I personally experienced the reality of starving kids, it affected me. It affected me deep down into my soul. You see, there's a huge difference, friends, between knowing something intellectually and having a personal experience of that thing. An experience that transforms you and changes you. And you know, just like those starving kids in Africa, it's possible for us here, maybe even some of you here this morning, it's possible for us to know Jesus intellectually and not truly know him personally in our heart in a relationship of love with him this is why the apostle paul he prayed in the book of ephesians chapter 3 verses 16 through 19 the apostle paul he prays for the church in ephesus he prays i pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and i pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of christ and to know this love that surpasses what Knowledge. It's more than head knowledge. It's a personal, deep, depth, transformative love that he's praying that you would experience so that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Friends, that's what we're talking about. It's a new, transformative relationship with God 
that we are offered and promised in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. It's a relationship that's more than about what we know about God, but about what we've experienced and how he transforms us and our whole vision of who he is. Man, this last week, I, had, I just had an incredible meeting this last week on Monday morning. I met with a woman from our community who, uh, who had recently prayed to receive Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. And I tell you what, this, this woman, she was just, I'm not gonna use her name because I didn't tell her or ask her to share this story, but, but she was just so excited and on fire for Jesus right now. I mean, she can't get enough of him. She's, she's spending time in the word every day. She's listening to worship music, you know, 24-7. I mean, she's just passionate about Jesus. And, and I asked her, I said, well, you know, how, how did this happen? How did you come to faith in Christ? And she said, you know, she says, it's really interesting. She says, I, I've known Jesus for a long time. I, I grew up going to church. I've been going to church faithfully for years. She says, I, I knew Jesus, but she says, I never really truly had a relationship with him. And you know what? When she finally prayed and submitted her life to the God that she always knew but had never embraced as hers in a relationship with him, once she did that, friends, it opened her eyes. It changed everything. And now what she once just knew intellectually has transformed her heart. And now she's overflowing with this newfound joy that comes through a relationship with our creator God. And I know some of you guys know what I'm talking about because you've had that same experience before. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible? The difference between a religious knowledge and a transformative personal relationship with God. And that's what God offers each of us, this intimate personal relationship. 1 John 3, 1 says, oh, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Friends, do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? I hope you have. I pray you have. And if you haven't, this morning, why not this morning? Why not just ask God to say, God, I, I'm here at church for Pete's sake. I know all about this stuff, but Jesus, I guess I just never have truly understood that I have the ability to be known as a child of God. Would you lavish that kind of love onto my heart today, Lord, in a new way? And I promise you, friends, if you call it to God, he will do that. He'll do a new work. He'll give you that new relationship with him. And it changes everything. I hope you know Jesus that way, friends. <clears throat> the third promise we have here in our passage this morning, not only do we get a new heart, not only do we get a new relationship, but in Jesus Christ we get a new standing with God. Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a promise. Friends, this is exactly what the old covenant couldn't do. The Old Testament religious system simply covered over our sins, like, a, like plastic wrap covering over that back guano in Wyoming. But our sins were never truly done away with. But now, in the new covenant, Jesus Christ gives us a totally new standing in the eyes of God. And what is this new standing, friends? Take a look at what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The new standing is this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's our new standing. Righteousness in Jesus Christ. God gives us this new standing, this new standing of righteousness. 
And if you remember last week, what is righteousness? Righteousness is simply goodness that is good enough for God. Goodness that is good enough for God. How are you going to do that on your own, right? You're going to be good enough for God on your own? God is perfect, morally pure, knows no sin. We, we can't gain righteousness on our own, but in Jesus Christ, he gives us a goodness that is good enough for God because he accomplished that on our behalf. When he lived a perfect sinless life, when he went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be made righteous. He imputes or he applies his righteousness to us and gives us a whole new standing in the eyes of our creator God. What an incredible promise we have. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he gives us a new standing, righteousness. What a promise. You know, when I was a kid, my brother and I, my brother and I were four years apart, and, and uh, when I was in junior high, I was about 12 years old. He was about eight years old. My dad, he used to travel a lot. He was a traveling evangelist and Christian apologist, and so he was on the road speaking quite a bit. And I, my, God bless my mom because, I mean, my brother and her, I gave her some grief when my dad was away on his trips. And uh, one of our favorite things to do when we were kids was to play WWF wrestling, right? And so I would usually be Andre the Giant because I was a lot bigger than him, and he would be Hulk Hogan or somebody. And, man, we would just set up our bedrooms with, you know, mattresses and pillows, and we would be jumping off, you know, the beds and slamming into each other and just going nuts, right? One afternoon, we were wrestling in our bedrooms after school, and uh, sure enough, you know, Andre the Giant picked up Hulk Hogan, and I go slamming my brother's head through the drywall of his bedroom. <laughs> now, he was fine, but there was a big hole the size of his head in his bedroom wall. And we're thinking to ourselves, oh, my goodness, we're going to get it when Dad gets home. So my brother and I, we got this great idea, right? My brother had a Mark McGuire poster on his wall. And we thought, you know what? What if we just move that Mark McGuire poster over a couple feet, and we'll cover up the, po the hole in the wall, and Dad will never even notice it. And so we did that. We took the poster, we moved it over about three feet, and put the pins in, and sure enough, look at there, good to go, right? Well, fortunately, my mom didn't notice anything for a couple days, but when Dad got home, Dad comes in, hey, boys, how you guys doing? And he's looking around, you know, and comes into my brother's room, and he says, well, that's interesting, the, the wall over there's a little bit discolored. You know, the poster had been up on the wall for a couple years, and he said, wait a minute, wasn't that poster over there a few feet? And pretty soon, he starts poking around, and he discovers this big hole, right? And my brother and I are thinking, oh, man, we're in big trouble. But my dad, he, my dad was an incredible guy. He took the opportunity to teach us an incredible lesson about the grace of God. And he was more disappointed in the fact that we tried to lie and cover up what we had done than, than the fact that we had actually, done, you know, uh, made a hole in the wall. And so my dad, he said, you know, boys, I want to, I wanna, we're going we're gonna to make this right. And he took down the poster, and the next day he got out some tools and he cut out the sheet of drywall, and we went down to the hardware store. We got a new patch of drywall. We put it in, covered it up with some paste, and we spent the afternoon working together, repainting that wall. And I tell you what, if you go to my mom's house today, you walk into that room, you never know there was a hole in the wall there because my dad had covered it up. He had made it just like new again. And you see, friends, this is what Jesus Christ does for us when he transforms our lives and he gives us this new standing in Christ. He takes away our sins. 
He makes us new again. He makes us whole again. And he gives us a new standing with God. He applies his righteousness to our lives and he removes all the evidence of our guilt in the eyes of a holy creator God. What an incredible promise, friends, to have a new standing with God. God says, I will remember their sins no more. You know, I run into a lot of people in my role as a pastor who come in and they say, I want to talk, you know, and, and I, I find that a lot of people are walking around with a lot of condemnation in their lives because of what they've done, because of the mistakes they've made, because of the sins they've committed. And a lot of people walk around and, and, and they're just beating themselves up over their, over their past. They're feeling condemned. They carry this burden with them. But friends, if you understand the promise that we have in Jesus Christ, that in Christ he gives us a new standing. Friends, you don't have to walk around with the weight of your past. You don't have to walk around being beaten up and condemned by your sin. In fact, friends, that is nothing more than the lies of the enemy trying to keep you bound to your old life when Jesus has promised, no, I've given you a whole new standing. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he writes this incredible reminder for us. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because we've got a new standing. We've got a new standing. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What an incredible promise, friends. God gives us a new heart, he gives us a new relationship, and then he gives us a new standing. Man, friends, aren't you glad we live under the new covenant? That we don't live under the Old Testament religious system of Judaism that never gave us any assurance of our salvation? That we had to keep performing these rituals to, to renew our cleansing in the eyes of God? But in the new covenant, God gives us a new heart in a new relationship, in a new standing. Only Jesus Christ has the power to remove the stink of our sin. Friends, only Jesus can clean up that big pile of backwater that resides in your heart and spills out over into every area of your life. And only Jesus can remove all the evidence of our guilt in the eyes of a holy God. I hope you've put your trust in Jesus. I pray that you know the new life that's available in Jesus Christ. And if you don't, friends, I, I pray even this morning that you might put your hope and trust in him. And for those of you who do, I pray that you leave here today with a new joy and a new enthusiasm for all that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. We thank you for the incredible promises that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you have been so good to us. Lord, you've overwhelmed us with, with favor and with blessings, none, none of which is of our own effort or work, Lord, but it's simply and purely because of your great love for us. You lavish us with love and with grace. And I thank you, Jesus, for the new heart you've given me, the new relationship I have with you, the new standing I have in you, Lord. I thank you for what you've done in the lives of my friends and, and I pray, Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet experienced that transformative power of your love and grace that they might just invite you into their heart today 
and they might leave here, Lord, knowing that they've been cleansed, that they've been forgiven, their guilt's been removed, they have a new heart and a new standing, that they might walk in a new joy today like never before because of you. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for all you've done. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen.